Welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Maybelle Romero, Assistant Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And my guest today is Etienne Toussaint. He is an Assistant Professor of Law at the University of District Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law. He'll be moving to the University of South Carolina School of Law in the fall. So congratulations, Etienne, on the move. And I'm really excited to talk with you about your paper, Blackness is Fighting Words, which has appeared in the December 2020 um, issue of Virginia Law Review Online. So thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk. I really, really love this paper. And I think it opens with this amazing sort of evocative story from your childhood, which I hope you you can share with our listeners, because I think it really kind of got to the sort of crux of the concept of, of fighting words, the different contexts in which those can arise, and how this project, it sounds like something that's been sort of percolating in your mind for a long time, actually. Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk about it. And what's interesting is, you know, I'm not a First Amendment scholar, um, but it's certainly an area that I've increasingly uh, become more interested in, especially during the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in the past uh, few years. And as, as I think as we continue to see protest, you know, now reach a global scale, uh, these issues of freedom of speech, you know, continue to become more and more important. Um, for me, the f- learning about the fighting words doctrine in the process of writing this essay was really interesting because the phrase, you know, fighting words is is something that, as I as I shared in the story, I sort of um, relate to my childhood. You know, this concept of, um, you know, someone speaking to you in a certain way that that could provoke a fight on the playground, um, and I, I just found it so fascinating that that doctrine, you know, invoked that that idea that that certain words that might provoke another person to fight would be words that we as a country uh, would not protect and and what does that mean in this modern day context where you know there are some some words and um ideas that are evoked via public protest that that cause that cause fights that cause rebellions that cause you know disagreements and it and I think it's important to think about you know, those dimensions when we talk about freedom of speech in the Constitution? You know, I find this sort of recollection of this anecdote that you give from childhood or, you know, these sorts of funny jokes about, you know, respective kids' moms and stuff like that. I remember these same sorts of jokes, too, where it's like, okay, you don't cross that line. That's just always fighting words. You know, you're ready to throw down when you hear that. You know, and it's it's fascinating studying the First Amendment. Like, wait, that actually exists in the law? Are you serious? Like, <laughs> you know, you're taught as a kid, like, okay, there aren't any words that are supposed to provoke you this much because they are just words. You know, what's wrong with you? But then, you know, you run into this fighting words doctrine. And I think it's really fascinating how you connect this doctrine um, with the concept of Black identity and Blackness. Uh, and this really, I think, provocative notion of Blackness in and of itself becoming fighting words in the consciousness of America, um, you know, on sort of a wider scale. So, you know, what exactly do you mean with regard to Blackness being fighting words? Um, you know, and I, I guess because of that, unprotected by the Constitution. Yeah, well, if we go back to the original case where this idea of fighting words, you know, first presented itself, at least in case law, um, we were going back to 1942. 
This is a time when Jim Crow segregation, you know, was still alive and well in the United States in a, in a visible sense. Um, and we have this case called Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire. It's a really peculiar case, um, but the 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 this this sort of important language that we can take away from the case, which defines what fighting words are, our fighting words are quote those which by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. It has been well observed that such utterances are no essential part of any exposition of ideas and are of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in order and morality. You know, as I read the case and thought about that, and this case was literally about a man who sort of yelled pro- profane words um, to to a, a local political administrator and was uh, essentially sanctioned for that. And then he brought a claim that, you know, in so doing, they violated his First Amendment's rights, his freedom of speech rights. Um, and this doctrine emerges where, you know, your freedom of speech is protected, but in some instances, it's not, right? If you push too far, if you say something that might provoke others to riot, that might provoke disorder, that might provoke social uh, unrest, that that's one step too far. Um, it really made me think about what I was watching on TV. Um, you know, people protesting in the street, police officers meeting them with shields and, and batons and, 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 and gas. Um, and so this violent you know, this violent interaction between the police and citizens who are protesting uh, racial injustice, it, it seemed to me a perfect demonstration where, in a very literal sense, the words of protesters were provoking violence, were provoking uh, injury upon the police officers who then met them with this violent response. And it, it caused me to question, you know, are these protest songs, so to speak, a kind of fighting words where they're not protected by the Constitution. And as a result, they become a site of social disorder that the government then is empowered to control, you know, to to mitigate. Um, And then, of course, we've seen other instances where, you know, people can engage in collective action on the street without saying anything at all. You know, we've seen silent protests, we've seen marches, um, we've seen artwork upon the floor sort of affirming the the humanity of, of people who endure racial injustice or other kinds of injustice. Um, and, and we've seen those kinds of expressions of speech also met by, you know, the, 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 the supervisory culture of the state, um, the silencing culture of the state. And so are those you know, kinds of fighting words, so to speak, that aren't granted protection and as a result become, uh, because they become a kind of social disorder that needs to be reined in. And you make some really amazing points, I think, about sort of the power of the state and sort of the the role of the state in enforcing more of a, a sort of social order rather than actually trying to, as you put it, quell social disruption and really the danger of police discretion in those circumstances, especially when, uh, honestly, you know, you see the police react so violently, even in response to the very phrase Black Lives Matter. 
Um, you know, and I don't even mean necessarily just only literal violence, although there was plenty of that, but even just like violent imagery, you know, violent themes among police officers. I feel like you see, you see this rise of like, um, you know, weird sorts of logos that they decide to adopt in response and everything. And it, it's really incredibly frightening, frankly. It really and is. I think that, you, you know, you point this out that it's like, okay, you, you know, you see the police who somehow feel provoked by this. You see other folks who, frankly, are, they feel provoked by the words Black Lives Matter because, frankly, they're racist. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and it feels sometimes like the state really seems to side with them most of the time with regard to how they are able to express their displeasure mm -hmm. um, rather than, um, you know, the other way around as it should be. Yeah. So, you know, how do you think that that reveals tensions in the First Amendment, especially racial tensions as to how it's enforced or how it's used? Yeah, one of the things that I try to highlight in this piece is that, you know, there's nothing that illuminating or exciting about the fighting words doctrine itself. And I think the reason is because it hasn't garnered much attention in legal scholarship. It, it is not a doctrine that is invoked widely in courts in the context of verbal disputes. And even when it has been invoked, it, it's only been done so in, in limited ways and, and the outcomes are rather inconsistent. Um, and that might be an interesting point there. But for me, I think the racial tension that it exposes is sort of reveals the way the First Amendment frames the interactions between citizens and police officers, um, which is to say, I think the fighting words doctrine is one example of how the First Amendment focuses the notion of protection of speech upon the inability of the recipient of the speech to restrain themselves from violence. Um, and not actually on the substance and content of the words spoken. Um, and so I think this is really important in the context of police officers because police officers effectively on the street are granted the discretion to determine whether speech that is uttered to them can be deemed fighting words, fall outside of the realm of constitutional protection. And it, it effectively renders police officers as a kind of judge jury, and as we've seen with the, the, the case of George Floyd, an executioner literally on the street. And I think this is really important because it effectively creates a kind of chilling effect for people of color who want to exercise their First Amendment rights to protest. It means that if I'm a Black or Brown citizen and I'm experiencing racism at the hands of police officers, yet I know that my verbal protest or my physical body in the street as a sign of protest might be interpreted by them as social disorder, might be interpreted by them as the kind of speech that's going to provoke violence. They may feel empowered to quell that so-called social disorder. They may feel empowered to meet that, that inciting of violence with violence. And I think it perfectly captures why police officers show up to protests already armed. You know, they, 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 they show up expecting a riot. And I think, you know, that's a really interesting dilemma because we then find ourselves in a society where some citizens may fear acts of protest because they might expect that bodily harm or arrest 
is waiting for them on the other side of that. And it, and, and, and that I think is, is a dangerous place to be And it. And it all, it also reminds us of the origins of policing, right? The origins of policing was to protect social order and people who were enslaved, people who were deemed property of others, sort of exercising their humanity was a, was an expression of disorder because that disrupted the logic of white supremacy. Yeah, and I think that that's, and I'm sorry to cut in, but I think that that's something that's really important that your paper contributes because, you know, I'll be honest, something that really infuriated me, you know, even last summer, the summer of 2020, and, you know, seeing a lot of the protests and the sort of mm-hmm. reaction that they get from law enforcement and, and the like, you know, was a lot of people saying, this isn't the America I know. And I'm like, well, Mm. what are you talking about? This is the America that we've had for a long time. So your paper does a really excellent job when it comes to tracking sort of the historical roots, you know, and sort of the natural continuation of our legal history when it comes to policing minoritized people, you know, Black people who are just trying to live their lives. You know, you, you talk about, you know, the Black codes that were, you know, enacted um, even after slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment and sort of the restrictions on freedom and movement that still existed, or even like the ability to get together just to like hang out and have leisure time. So I'd love to hear more about just sort of that historical development and like tracing that thread through to today, actually. Absolutely. Well, there's a part of the paper where I talk about that history. And there are some other scholars, in fact, who recently have delved into that uh, history uh, Brandon Hasbrook from Washington and Lee has a great piece as well that talks a little bit about the 13th Amendment and, and how modern policing sort of sort of pushes us to think about those dimensions. But in this piece, I talk really simply about the origins of the First Amendment, the freedom of speech. And we do have to remember that at its origin, these rights were not conditional, that during the, the, the early generations in terms of the founding of our country, those in power were thinking about how to suppress, you know, members of the general public who might riot. And so there were sort of systems of law borrowed from England that sought to, to, to mitigate rioting or mitigate assemblies of, of, of members of the general public that might overthrow the power force that was developing within the, what, what would become the United States. And so we see elements of the British Riot Act in the very early militia acts that were adopted by the United States Congress in the late 1700s. And over time, of course, as we know, freedom of speech sort of evolved and emerged. We have great thinkers, John Adams and others, that that, 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 that sort of worked to clarify our First Amendment rights. But it's very important when we're understanding that history to recognize that, you know, Black people and, and other minorities were not included in that vision of free speech. And so, you know, after emancipation, we saw the, the rise of black codes. We saw eventually the rise of Jim Crow and other laws and policies that ultimately sought to reinscribe the kind of social order that mirrored the relationship between white and non-white people during enslavement. And, and we see this sort of parallel rise of a police state to, to support that, to, to, to perpetuate that power structure, that power imbalance. And I think, you know, you do such a great job of explaining that history, explaining a line of cases, and then really 
getting to this point in your paper where it's like, okay, we've looked at this history. Now let's talk about how, you know, because of this history and because of the fighting words doctrine, how it's been applied, you know, we have really serious, important questions about the fact that, look, that there are limits on constitutional protections for black and brown people um, that look very different than perhaps for white people. And I think it does a remarkable job. And I think it's actually a very poignant read and a really like serious one that everyone needs to check out. Have you seen any or or have you had the opportunity to track just how state and local governments have responded to concerns with regard to public speech that, you know, gets criminalized or something like that? How have different towns and cities been handling this, I'm wondering? You know, I think it's an ongoing issue. And I think I think it's an important area for scholars to continue to explore because it's an area where the law doesn't provide clarity. And so I think you'll see different approaches and different. Uh, in different places. And, you know, I also think that it, there are many instances where these First Amendment issues, these issues about freedom of speech, really get transformed into Fourth Amendment issues. Um, and so I think there's a very interesting tension that I, I kind of hint at that I, that I think scholars need to explore, which is the relationship between the First and Fourth Amendment, you know, which is to say, because the First Amendment doesn't really provide a robust framework to think about anti-racist speech. And the question of whether anti-racist speech inciting violence being a kind of social disorder that the law does not want to protect, um, how does that relate to the power that police officers have under the Fourth Amendment to meet the threat of social disorder, the threat of bodily harm to others with imminent harm, um, with, with, with sort of force, with deadly force. You know, and so I think the police, uh, I think there's an interesting tension there, and we see that playing out on the street, you know, where police officers use force to, to sort of silence protesters because there's a threat of a, a more larger breach of the peace notwithstanding the fact that the very words of the protesters are, are seeking to protest maybe the actions of the police themselves or more generally anti-racism in their community. You know, and it seems like the police are always primed to, to react extremely violently, not just to protest, but like any form of, uh, of critique or any form of having people kind of poke fun at them whatsoever. And you include this really sort of interesting example out of Virginia, where the Virginia Court of Appeals overturned the conviction of someone who, you know, I'm quoting here, called police officers fucking pigs and indicated that they should be, quote, at a fucking donut shop. So uh, this is something I've seen in my own brief experience as a prosecutor, police officers who'd be referring people for, you know, all manner of different kinds of um, charges just because they got, you know, flipped off or because they got yelled at or something like that. So, you know, it's fascinating to see sort of the strange police culture that must exist such that they want to respond to every affront like this with violence. But especially if, you know, I'll be honest, what I saw was especially if it was from someone who was black or brown, um, it it seemed very much like a very quick flashpoint for them. Um, So what sort of like, do you think that there's any sort of like hyper-masculinity too that kind of goes into this or like some aspects of like police culture that have been sort of um, encouraged over the years that might lead to that sort of response? 
Yes, absolutely. I talk a little bit about that in the paper, and I think it's something that um, you know other scholars have have talked about as well. But I, but I think undeniably, because what we conceive of today as the police is merely an extension of you know the very earliest patrols that were maintaining the social order of a society run by, you know, that was, that was premised upon the enslavement uh, of people. I think because of that origin, we have a culture that, that, that sort of has adopted that kind of violence um, at, as a tool to maintain social order. And so I think that's certainly at play. I think there are aspects of masculinity also at play as well. And this cuts across both racial and class lines. You know, historically, the police force has been a predominantly male industry, so to speak. And I think that there's, there's, a, there's a way in which the interactions of men in different positions of power can animate different tropes of masculinity, different ideas of masculinity that reflect different experiences in terms of where people grew up, how they interact with other people of a gen, uh, the same or different genders. Certainly in a patriarchal society where men have historically been viewed as a sort of power figure in society, then the ability for a man to express that power in a public forum is an, is an assertion of that masculinity, you know, in the very stereotypical fashion. And so we see that historically interactions between police officers and citizens, especially when the police officers are white and the citizens are black, but even when the police officers are not white, it typically reflects that same power imbalance. Uh, in a society where a very large percentage of the incarcerated are men, um, black men, and, and a very large percentage of the police force are men, you kind of see that same power struggle play out. Um, and, and certainly, to the extent that there are uh, there is a significant number of police officers that that come from a lower or middle class tier of society, then the ability to exercise a sense of power, dominance, and importance in the community is an important expression of of, of you know their value. One might argue in in their community, in their society, and so any affront to that status is something that needs to be, you know, mitigated full stop. And so certainly when a police officer is called, you know, a pig, when a, when a police officer is, said, is told they should be at a fucking donut shop, they will take that as an insult. Or when they're called out as just straight up being racist, as you mentioned in another case. Right. Yeah, they take it as an insult, right? Uh, but more than <laughs> an insult, it is a critique of the, of the social order. It is a, a it is a protest to the dominance of police officers and this and the sort of suppression of citizens who are supposed to you know step aside, cower, silence themselves when police officers come by, and so it sort of defies that power structure um, in ways that creates a site of disorder. And I appreciate you mentioning that you see a lot of the same sorts of dynamics at play even when the police officers in question aren't white themselves because, you know, generally they're upholding this predominantly white male power structure, um, which, you know, you get into talking about sort of, you call it a, a rich legacy of white supremacist ideology woven into the 
fabric of American culture that, you know, really tries to set this standard for reasonableness in perceiving anti-racist pure speech, you know, and I thought that that was really important in trying to understand, okay, why exactly do we as a society, you know, especially those of those cops out there who are supposed to be upholding, you know, societal norms and society, like sort of hegemonic power structures, why do they react so violently against blackness or even just the utterance of like black lives matter? Why is this such a threat? And anything that threatens that power structure, you know, is just something that it wants to tear down immediately. And I think that this paper did a a really incredible job of looking at that and examining how, in that sense, blackness does become fighting words. It becomes something that provokes certain segments of society to even like violence. And it's horrible. But, you know, what I'm wondering is I'm really hoping that you continue to follow up on this line of inquiry. You know, I I found this sort of question and this section of your paper entitled, you know, Black Lives and Imminent Lawlessness, like really fascinating. And I I hope you write more about this. So do you have anything in the hopper still relating to this again in future? Yeah, I'm I'm still continuing to think this through. You know, I think that very last section for me, it, it connects with the broader questions that I have about the idea of liberty, which I talk about in different aspects. I often write about liberty in the context of, you know, economic justice when I think about community economic development. Uh, But I think this idea of Black lives and imminent lawlessness is very much a reflection of a sense, you know, are certain people free? Are, Are certain people in our society really free? Which is to say, do they share the same freedoms of others to express themselves in ways that might disagree with the status quo and not be sanctioned as a result, right? Are some, are some citizens silenced in such a way that their protest or, or even their affirmation of their humanity, their dignity, you know, will not be met with a curfew, will not be met with a threat of arrest, will not be met with um, violence at the hands of the state. And, and, you know, to me, I sort of end the piece provocatively, you know, with this sort of saying that one might here in the Bronx or, or any of the urban place in, in, in the country, which is, you know, if, if, if the police want to fight, then they can catch these hands. And, you know, I'm not necessarily, uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting, right. That we should respond to violence with violence. Cause I think that can be quite destructive, but I am suggesting that I think we need to, as a society, really think intentionally about, you know, what is, uh, what is underneath these explosions of violence. Are these explosions of violence really just sites of social disorder that the state, that the police need to control and need to you know, use militarized weaponry? Or does it reflect a, a deeper and, and more um, sincere need for a moral reckoning, which is to say they reflect anger? And, and I point to you know, this idea um, from 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 Audrey Lord, which says, you know, what she says that there is sometimes moral utility in anger, which means, you know, which means that anger doesn't always birth destruction. Sometimes anger is necessary to catalyze change, you know, necessary to provoke the need for change, necessary to, you know, unsettle the norm um, and to, you know, get people animated to do something different. And so to me, I think you know, if, if we're going to fight, let, let's fight as a country to make things better. Let's look at sites of, of social disorder as an opportunity 
to take that energy, to take that frustration and, and channel it in a different direction and not merely, you know, channel the voices of those people into cells, you know, into prison cells. Absolutely. You know, and I hope that this really is, at least what we're seeing now, at least the very beginnings of a reckoning that's long overdue. But thank you so much for sharing this paper with me and chatting with me about it today. I, I find it a really inspiring read. It's really given me some new lenses at which to look at, you know, the First Amendment and the Fighting Words Doctrine. So for that, I'm very grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. How can it be you can rest everybody but cruel Stagley, that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. There's the line told Stagley, please don't take my life. I got two little babes and a darling loving wife, that bad man, oh cruel Stanley. What I care about you two little babes and darling loving wife, you done stole my stuttering hat, I'm bound to take your life. That bad man, oh cruel Stanley. Bad man, oh, cruel Stanley. 